Atlanta, we have a problem. This is not a call for help from Apollo 13, but a problem right here in the USA today. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Jernigan. Dr. Jernigan is the Chief of the Interventions and Evaluation Section in the Division of Healthcare Quality Promotion at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia. He is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Emory University School of Medicine. Today we are discussing the rise and hopefully the fall of methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or Mercer. Hi, Dr. Jernigan. It's great of you to join us at the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm glad to be with you. A colleague of mine said, situation's kind of like the subprime mortgage situation we're in right now. We've known about the problem for a long time, but somehow the ball got dropped. We didn't deal with it when it first appeared. What do you have to say about that? Well, I think there are a number of factors that have contributed to the spread of MRSA. And as you know, MRSA first emerged in the healthcare setting. And for a number of decades, until the late 1990s, from when it first emerged in the early 1960s, it had been almost exclusively a problem of the healthcare setting. And so if, if you were dealing with an MRSA infection, you'd be most assured the patient probably acquired that within the healthcare setting. Of course, that's no longer true. But let me talk for a moment about the healthcare setting and why things may have spread in an uncontrolled way. I appreciate that. I think it has to do with a number of factors. Number one, I think the nature of patient care has changed and has increased the risk for developing infections with resistant organisms. In what way? Patients that end up in the hospital tend to be sicker. These days, they tend to undergo more invasive procedures. Mm -hmm. And we have this whole array of broad-spectrum antimicrobial agents that are used with great frequency in patient care setting, sometimes inappropriately, but many times appropriately. And even if all use was appropriate, there's going to be a lot of antimicrobial use. This creates a, a setting in which resistant organisms have a selective advantage. It can spread very rapidly. This is combined with the fact that we as healthcare workers really haven't been that good at following simple infection control practices. Take hand hygiene, for example, the most basic uh, form of infection control that we've known for over 100 years is quite effective at preventing transmission of pathogens in healthcare. And yet, study after study after study suggests that healthcare workers only wash their hands 30 or 40 percent of the time that they should be washing their hands or cleaning their hands. That's really pretty scary. It is scary. And I think that perhaps we haven't done a good enough job at educating healthcare workers on on what role they actually do play. Sometimes it's hard to relate the act of transmitting a pathogen to some bad outcome because it's invisible. And the outcome that occurs because of that transmission occurs sometime later, probably when that patient is not even any longer under your care. So it's been hard for healthcare workers in their minds to connect failure to wash their hands at time point A and a life-threatening nosocomial infection at some point in the not-too-distant future. It's kind of like see no evil, do no evil. Well, I, I think that's been part you of the can't problem. See, yeah. yeah. Albert Einstein said, the significant problems we face cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. Give me your thoughts on any new and novel approaches to the problem of multidrug-resistant organisms and spread of infections. Well, one thing I would like to comment on is that I think there has been recently a kind of a seat change in the way 
infection control departments are thinking about their goals. One of the unknown figures in, in medicine has been what is the preventable fraction of healthcare-associated infections. Well, what do I mean by the preventable fraction? What I mean is, of all nosocomial infections, what proportion is actually preventable? I think most people think that there are some infections that meet the definition of a healthcare-associated or nosocomial infection that would occur even if perfect care was applied. It's just the fact of the patient's underlying immunocompromising conditions the limitations of medical science in terms of what we do in terms of invasive procedures. Some people think that some proportion of nosocomial infections are going to occur even if we apply care perfectly. You got a rough ballpark percentage that you could give us? Well, that's been the whole problem. Some of the earliest studies that tried to answer the question date back to the 70s in studies that were actually performed by the CDC. And there was one large study that actually tried to estimate this, and the results were kind of underwhelming, if you think about it. The results said that even if you have the most highly effective infection control program, you are able to prevent about 30% of all healthcare-associated infections. Now, some people might think, well, that's great. Others may look at that and say, well, you know, the glass is half empty. If, you know, if what you're saying is that most of these infections probably aren't preventable. And if that sort of fact is and figure is lurking in the background of the minds of the people who are running infect control departments, maybe they're thinking, look, you know, I, I don't know what goals I should shoot for if most of these are not preventable anyway. Well, a very interesting thing has happened in recent years, and there are a number of, of leading healthcare facilities across the United States who begin to challenge that and actually set zero as a theoretical goal. In other words, set as their goal for their infect control program that they can actually eliminate all healthcare-associated infections. Basically zero tolerance. Even if they didn't think that they could get there in real life, it's mm -hmm. an appealing theoretical goal, and you never know how close you're going to get to that till you try. And it turns out that many people who have set that as a goal have been able to get pretty darn close, at least with some types of infection. For example, catheter-associated bloodstream infections. And that, that has been demonstrated repeatedly in facility after facility in the United States. So I think people are beginning to rethink this idea of preventability and are beginning to think that, well, maybe the preventable fraction of infections is much larger than we actually thought. So there is a silver lining. I think so. I'd like to welcome all those who are just joining us. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and I'm speaking today with Dr. John Jernigan of the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia. We're discussing how we got into, and hopefully we'll get out of, the sticky wicket of methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. Could I have some fun for a minute? <laughs> Dr. Robin Cook had a recent bestseller that's entitled Critical, and I don't know if you had a chance to read the book, but the premise is that a government agency was introducing MRSA into operating rooms of several for-profit hospitals in an attempt to spoil the hospital's IPO. One of your areas I read is a specialty in bioterrorism-related anthrax. I mean, is this scenario beyond our wildest dreams? <laughs> well, I can assure you that we're doing our best to try to help hospitals keep MRSA out of their facility and not into it. I can assure you that, which is a trick, especially now with the onset of community-associated MRSA and as prevalent as it has become. Going back to my good friend Jim Kramer, who said, at last we're seeing signs that there's a game plan for dealing with the mess. I mean, again, he was talking about the banking crisis, 
But it just sort of repeatedly amazes me that one of the beauties of America is that when there's a profit to be made, all of a sudden solutions are found. I read a report on Bloomberg News Services that J&J and Pfizer have antibiotics that may create a $2.5 billion market in treatment of MRSA and other drug-resistant bacteria. And Wyeth already introduced an antibiotic called Tigacil, which they expect to have peak sales of more than a billion dollars. You know, first of all, why does it take the drug companies to solve our problems? And secondly, how are we going to restrict the use of these drugs to prevent further development of antibiotic resistance? I mean, we're just going to get in this downhill spiral. Well, I think it's a good point. And actually, one of the problems has been that the pharmaceutical industry has actually slowed down in its production of new antibiotics as an answer to the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. And I think we should never rely on the next new antibiotic to solve this problem. I think we need to focus more on when antimicrobial resistance does emerge, we need to contain it and prevent it from spreading. MRSA and other antimicrobial resistant problems, such as VRE, is mainly a problem of transmission of a few relatively few strains or relatively few genetic elements among strains. And so I think the combination of being better at controlling these pathogens through simple infection control measures with, you know, the next new antimicrobial agent is really the key here. And you also touch on a very important point that using our antimicrobials judiciously is absolutely key. When a new antimicrobial agent becomes available, if we use it with abandon in settings where it's not really indicated, we know that antimicrobial resistance will follow its use as surely as night follows the day. So the more judicious we can use those antibiotics, the more likely we'll prolong the useful half-life of those antibiotics. So I think it's a combination of the infection control practices, using our antimicrobials wisely, and partnering with industry to know where the needs are. So you would actually favor slowing down the development of antibiotics so that there's not such a proliferation? No, no, I didn't say that. I think we need more antibiotics in the pipeline as part of the answer to this. I think what I said was we actually have seen a slowing down of antibiotic production by the pharmaceutical industry. I don't have the figures right in front of me, but I think most of the data suggests that there's a lot of big pharma who's moved out of the antimicrobial business. And so the number of new drugs coming down the pipeline has slowed in recent years, not increased. So it's really a business decision by the part of the pharmaceutical companies. Well, I think so. And who knows if part of that decision is the fact that with injudicious use, the useful half-life of these agents may be reduced because of the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. To make progress, it seems that we've got to have behavior change, which sort of fascinates me because it's such a difficult thing to achieve. The Center for Medicare Services now says they will no longer pay for hospital-acquired infections. You previously mentioned that, you know, zero tolerance might be the way to go. Do you think this is going to have a motivational effect? Do you think we're going to see real change, that the administration is going to commit themselves that all of a sudden they're not going to get paid? Well, we certainly have seen some of that movement, and that certainly does get people's attention. I think that's a stick approach. It would be nicer if we could perhaps devise some sort of carrot approach. Any thoughts on how we'll do that? Well, I, I know that there are probably a number of ways to consider it. There are certain payers who actually have paper performance systems that you know reward hospitals who put certain programs in place and, and demonstrate a certain level of effectiveness. I think that's one idea. I think that there are other groups of facilities and places that are sharing information 
across facilities so that successful practices can be identified and shared so that effective programs can be spread more widely than they are now. Not sure what the best solutions are, but it is clear that I think that we, capital W, as a healthcare system, can do better at preventing healthcare-associated infections and other adverse events. I'd like to thank Dr. John Jernigan, who has been our guest and who has kindly tolerated some of my thoughts on the subject of MRSA. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and take advantage of our new on-demand and podcast features, which allows you access to our entire program library. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health.